Welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Brought to you by Ospin and Fresenius Carby. We are your hosts. I'm Bridie. And I'm Emily. And we are accredited practicing dietitians. We don't have all the answers. So each episode, we will deliver insightful conversations with our nutrition leaders who help us navigate the ever-changing world of clinical nutrition. This podcast takes you on a deep dive into evidence-based nutrition and what it means to be a nutrition professional. Together, we will find the answers to your questions, shine a spotlight on our nutrition colleagues, and help you create an impact in your nutrition career. In this season, we talk with leading nutrition professionals who share their expertise in oncology, enteral and parenteral nutrition. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare professional prior to providing or accepting any clinical interventions. In today's episode, we speak with two guests, Lisa Murnane and Kate Hamilton, about enteral nutrition. Lisa is a senior dietitian and leads the Enteral and Parenteral Nutrition Service at Alfred Health Melbourne. She has a range of experience having worked in various acute clinical settings, including intensive care, oncology and gastroenterology. As part of her work at the Alfred, Lisa is a credentialed PEG dietitian, which allows her to manage or change feeding gastrostomy tubes as part of the Home Enteral Nutrition Service. Lisa specialises in nutrition support for upper gastrointestinal surgery patients and is undertaking a PhD in the area of esophagogastric cancer surgery. Kate Hamilton is a senior clinical dietitian at Austin Health in Melbourne. Kate has almost 20 years of clinical experience and specialises in critical care, liver and intestinal transplant, and home parenteral nutrition. Kate is the Austin's nutrition support lead and is advanced practice credentialed in gastrostomy tube management. Kate and Lisa, welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. We're really looking forward to sharing in both of your expertise. Kate and Lisa, um, for nutrition professionals who may not have worked with enteral nutrition before, can you explain to us what it is and why we would use enteral nutrition? I guess enteral nutrition is feeding via a tube into either the stomach or the small bowel. The tube either passes from the nose, so for example, a nasogastric or nasogenal tube, through the mouth, an orogastric tube. Rarely we can use transesophageal tube, or the tubes can go by the spin. So a peg tube into the stomach or a jejunostomy tube into the bowel. On very rare occasions with in patients with an intracutaneous fistula, a tube may be inserted into the distal limb of the fistula, and this is called fistulocolysis. The enteral nutrition is used for a wide variety of reasons, but generally because nutrition can't be taken by mouth. Fantastic. And what's the best way to start enteral nutrition? Do we go straight to a target rate or are we better off starting slow and steady and then increasing? I think it depends. Everything depends. <laughs> I think every answer I'll say will depend on the patient um, and whether or not I guess when the feeding tube was placed or what state the patient is in when they have the feeding tube placed. I think for um, an otherwise well patient who may have, you know, a a nasogastric tube placed, um, for example, you could probably get to target rate quite quickly. Um, If you have someone who has nasojejunal feeding um, or small bowel feeding, you would probably go more slowly um, in in that instance. for patients who have a um, jejunostomy tube placed as part of another major 
um, resection, like an esophagectomy or gastrectomy. There are a variety of reasons why you may need to go slower and assess tolerance for those patients so that they, you can assess for uh, a postoperative ileus, for example. Um, but Kate's probably better to speak about ICU, but I know it can be safe to go to target rate in ICU um, for, for some patients, and that is done in some centres. But um, I, I wouldn't be as familiar with what the guide, ICU guidelines say. So I don't know if you want to add anything about that, Kate. No, I think what you said spot on. Like it's very institution-based and we certainly don't go straight to target here at the Austin, but I know other hospitals in Melbourne do. And I think it's doctor preference that guides which way you go. Sure. And on the other end of enteral nutrition, when we're thinking about weaning, what should we be looking for for our patients and, and what advice can you give us as to, to how to, to wean them off enteral nutrition? I guess they need to be tolerating some sort of alternative form of nutrition before you even begin to, to think about weaning them. And again, I think every centre will have different guidelines, but here at the Austin, we tend to start reducing feeds once they're managing about 50% of their requirements orally and would consider seeding them at the 75% mark. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, that those um, cut points are, are reasonable, um, but, I, but I also do think there are some patients who would need to have um, be meeting a lot more or show promise, I guess, to increase a lot more depending on their state. So I think in addition to what Kate said about their oral nutrition providing that amount, um, I think obviously we'd need to look at have we achieved the goals we set out to achieve with the enteral nutrition. I think, you know, a lot of the time, as we all know, having a few mouthfuls of something on a day when a certain someone walks past looks like a person is eating and there's an indication to wean the feeds. But um, we know that that, that level of um, dietary intake orally needs to be consistent um, in order to wean the feeds and be really confident that they're not going to need it again um, and I guess if there's a, a period where maybe a trial of having the feeds off but continuing to eat might be needed just to see if they do pick up potentially but leave the tube in um, is always something that you know is, is often needed really just to be sure that it's not going to be needed again in the future. Sure I think Lisa you said before that um, it depends and it certainly sounds like it does depend on the exact situation but um, really we want to see um, confidence in our patients managing intake to, to whatever degree that might be feasible consistently. And that's, that's really the, um, the main point that we're hearing from you guys. I'm quite passionate about making sure that when a patient comes out of ICU onto the ward, that that um, adequacy is assessed early on to make sure that tubes aren't removed too soon. Or if someone goes from an acute setting to a, a subacute setting that again, it's not perceived or, or seen to be an improvement and they're, they're taken off it too early. So I think yeah, every person is very different and whatever the reason was they had the tube needs to be considered. Has that improved? Is that better? Um, you know, for a lot of patients, if it's related to cancer, has, has that been resolved? Um, just that type of thing as well. That's one of the, uh, the greatest frustrations about working in ICU is often when that uh, breathing tube comes out, the nasogastric tube comes out with it. And yeah, the patient has absolutely zero chance to prove they can actually manage any sort of adequate oral intake, but it's too late, the tube's already gone. And then it's always a battle to try and get a new one placed. Absolutely. And so rarely do they tolerate <clears throat> adequate nutrition at that point, unless, it, unless they've only been intubated for a couple of days. Most patients will need that sort of two to three days minimum, won't they? 
And Lisa, we understand that the monitoring of patients receiving enteral nutrition is a key factor in providing optimal nutritional care. What factors do you feel may get overlooked or missed by clinicians monitoring? You've already talked about goals, and I think that's really important, setting those goals and, and really reflecting on them. Are there any other clinical or anthropometric factors that you feel may get missed? Yeah, um, that's a good question, Emily. I think some of the standard things we're taught to monitor about enteral nutrition uh, are obviously very important. Um, you know, a lot of people focus on body weight, which of course is important, but and then, you know, blood sugar levels and bowel function and things like that. But I honestly think that one of the main things we need to do and do very well is find out exactly what the patient is actually receiving. So on the wards office, that sounds very basic, but you can chart a natural feeding regimen all you like, but if they're not getting it, it's not doing what it's intended to do. So I guess on the wards, that means really getting a very good understanding of what the patient's receiving, knowing if there's any breaks in the day that contribute to the patient not getting the full volume. Um, you know, speaking to the nurses to find out if there's been any breaks that perhaps haven't been recorded, just that type of thing. Um, and again, for home patients, really understanding their regimen, what their day looks like, um, and are they getting through the whole bag? Is it every day or are they missing some days? Are they changing things? Um, so even though that sounds incredibly basic, I think a lot of the time we can set something and think it's happening and then walk off and wonder why someone's not gaining weight. Um, when if you dig down, you really see that they're actually not getting what they need consistently because they're running 800 mils of the bag overnight instead of the, the litre that you prescribed. Um, and I guess that brings me to the next point in terms of the prescription is re-estimating requirements all the time. Um, because as we all know, the patient's condition changes from the acute to subacute to home. And I think just revisiting the requirements and the goals and, and what that's giving us, um, what sorry, what's giving the patient is is it enough is probably something that can go by the wayside. I think, as I said, we, we're sometimes good at ticking those boxes of the obvious ones, but the bigger picture um, direction of care, I think sometimes gets missed. Thanks, they're great tips. And especially the cumulative intake, I think that more often than not doesn't get looked at, does it? And it's hard to, it's sometimes hard to assess, but you're right, if you dig down, then you, you end up with more information than you started with, which has got to be a stronger position. Yeah. The tool that we're using at the Austin a lot more these days is grip strength. So we find it really responsive to changes in nutrition, often a lot more quickly than weight does, and the patients love it. So, you know, they can see that they're having this tube feed and their strength is improving. And, yeah, it's just a really useful tool to prove outcomes. Great. Thank you. And over what period of time do you usually see the changes? So we often repeat it weekly, and it's very responsive to change. So it can change in that time frame. Great. Yeah, it's a really good tip. Thank you. And in terms of um, feeding into the stomach versus the small bowel, are there any considerations in terms of formulas or volumes or sterile water versus non-sterile water? Do you have any tips around that? I think with, yeah, there's definitely considerations with where you're feeding. Um, if you're feeding into the stomach, obviously you've got a larger reservoir. So the volume at any one time can be greater. Uh, they are more likely to tolerate bolus feeds and higher concentrated formulas as well. Um, if you've got someone who has jejunal feeding, uh, a lot of the time that is done via um, continuous feeds or drip feeds, however you want to 
describe it, um, via the pump. Um, so it's a slower delivery of the nutrition formula into the small bowel. That said, I definitely know that there are patients that can tolerate boluses into their jejunum. Um, I think most guidelines would say that that's contraindicated and it might be a bit controversial to say that, but sometimes if you've got patients who won't do anything other than bolus and they do it and they do it in small volumes and they feel okay, that's better than them refusing to use a pump, for example. So you know, there are guidelines and there are recommendations and a lot of them are around tolerance as opposed to complete contraindications, I feel. So I think if you're assessing the tolerance of using a higher concentrated formula into the small bowel, for example, a lot of people are worried about using that, but it can be done and some people do manage to tolerate that. So I guess they're the main two things you would think about. Um, you said something else there, Emily. Sorry, I missed the second bit. I was just wondering about the recommendations around the use of sterile water for small bowel feeding. Is that something that you support or what's your practice? Again, looking at what the guidelines recommend, they do say that um, sterile water should be used for um, small bowel feeding, um, but we have never actually done that here at the Alfred. Um, for inpatients, they do use sterile water. They tend to use that generally for a lot of flushes just because the nurses are used to that practice. Um, but for patients who are going home with jejunal feeds, uh, we don't mandate that they use sterile water. We do suggest that it's you know tap water or boiled, um, but check that they're not using rainwater or tank water or anything like that, that that could be contaminated. So we do double check that, but we don't insist that it, um, that it is sterile water. But again, that is very um, institution um, specific. So it's important to check what, I guess, your hospital has agreed upon from that perspective. And what about at the Austin Kate? Are they using sterile water routinely there? No, so we don't use it on the wards or in our home for nutrition patients either. Okay, great. It's good to get both of your perspectives. So we spoke before about selecting different formulas, whether they had fibre or no fibre, but we know that there are a whole lot of other options when it comes to specialised formulas, and these include diabetic or high-protein, renal or immunonutrition formulas. Can you tell us a little bit more about the evidence behind these and what sort of patients would benefit from these different formulas? Again, I think the answer of the day, it depends. Um, really need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, in a normal diet that you're taking by mouth, that contains fibre and that has beneficial effects on the gut and the microbiome, etc. So I think for the, the vast majority of patients, particularly longer-term patients, then yes, including some fibre in their formula is probably a good idea. But absolutely, there are caveats where it might be better to not have any fibre. Um, I know the Aspen guidelines state that insoluble fibre should never be used in a hemodynamically unstable intensive care patient. So that's good advice to follow in my opinion. And then you've got patients with um, gastrointestinal issues. So, you know, perhaps an inflammatory bowel disease where the gut's very inflamed and insoluble fibre would increase transit time. You'd probably want, be wanting to make sure that if there was a fibre in, in that person's formula, that it was 100% soluble. And then I guess you've also got to consider dietary intolerances or FODMAPs because a lot of the formulas contain FODMAPs, which is obviously very high in FODMAPs. So a fibre-free or at least a FODMAP-free formula would be better for those individuals. 
Sure, thank you. And Lisa, in the patient group that you see predominantly that surgical component, um, what do they benefit from, fibre or no fibre? We normally start from no fibre early on um, and it would really just be for the first period. But when they go home, I think that they, they do need fibre unless they have got any specific issues whereby they're not tolerating it if their bowel function or abdominal pain or um, you know other GI symptoms worsens with the addition of fibre. I think that there shouldn't be any reason why uh, those patients can't have fibre. Uh, but we do... Yeah, we start immediately post-op on a non-fibre formula and transition a bit later. And what is the evidence behind that? Or is it clinical preference, surgeon preference? Yeah, good question. Um, A lot of it, the surgeons were concerned about the use of fibre. I wasn't as much, to be honest, because it's really such a low volume in that first sort of five days if we're feeding overnight, sorry, feeding at a low rate before we switch to overnight feeds. the contraindication really isn't the same evidence base as Kate was talking about, about the hemodynamically unstable ICU patient. So I think it's actually weak evidence. Um, it is just, I don't think you could say there's any benefit to having fibre given that the amount of formula they're having is quite low in that period. So we've just opted not to have it just to improve tolerance in case anyone does have any issues with the fibre, if that makes sense. So it's it's not a hard um hard and fast rule necessarily. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Thank you. And following on from this, patients often experience changes in bowel habits when they're receiving enteral nutrition. Can you explain why this is the case? And do you have any tips for how to manage that and still ensure nutritional adequacy and that the full volume of prescribed feed is delivered? Yeah, so I think it's really important for both clinicians and patients to be aware that their bowel function is not going to be the same when they're on a fully liquid formula to when they were eating food. And the consistency of bowel output that we would expect for somebody on enteral nutrition has been described as being the consistency of toothpaste. So that would be, you know, probably looser and softer than what is considered normal for somebody who's eating and drinking. But that said, altered bowel function is incredibly common in patients receiving enteral nutrition with estimates of the prevalence of both diarrhoea and constipation really high. So the literature reports between 2 and 95% of patients experience either diarrhoea or constipation. So it's a very, very common issue. And particularly for inpatients, it can be really difficult to meet their needs because nursing staff are often stopping the feeds if somebody's got terrible diarrhoea. And I can understand that if, you know, you're the one who's having to clean up. But obviously that impacts on their risk of malnutrition and potentially length of stay in their their hospital outcomes. So it's far from the ideal scenario. There is so much literature about the use of fibre supplementation in enteral nutrition and particularly around the prevention of diarrhoea. And really important to know that not all fibres are created equal. So when you really drill down and look at the specific types of of fibres, some have some mixed results, some really don't seem to do much at all, and others seem to be very effective in most trials that have been published. And I'm a huge advocate for one particular fibre, which is partially hydrolyzed guava, or PHGG. 
So in high doses of around 22 grams per litre, guar gum has been shown to be really effective in both the treatment of diarrhoea, and that's even true for ICU patients who are ventilated, septic and receiving IV antibiotics, but this fibre can still decrease stool output in those patients. But equally, it's been shown to decrease constipation in, in patients receiving enteral nutrition who are constipated. So fibre is good for the treatment of bowel function, so long as you're using the right kind of fibre and so long as you're using a decent dose. So, you know, a few grams here or there isn't going to make a difference either way. It really needs to be a minimum threshold dose of at least 15 grams per day to, to make any difference at all. That's great advice. Thank you. And so it sounds like fibre certainly plays a role in I was going to say normalising, but maybe improving bowel function. And do you think also there's a role for education around hospital staff, nurses, to really try and normalise the bowel changes so that they're not reacting to that, which, as you say, is understandable, but at the end of the day, if, it's, if we're expecting it, maybe that would lead to less interruptions to enteral delivery. Yeah, it's really tricky because there's actually no standardised definition of what diarrhoea actually is. And one nurse might think one type 7 stool oh, my God, I've got diarrhoea, where another nurse, you know, is dealing with changing the bed every 25 minutes. Um, so it really is important to say, okay, so they've got diarrhoea, but what do you mean? What's the volume? How often? Um, and really drilling down to whether it's actually a massive problem or just the odd loose stool. Absolutely. And I guess the other impacting factors such as antibiotics as well, which often we go straight to blaming the feed when it's a multifactorial situation. Yeah, or, the, you know, perhaps they're still on mobile call BD or something and they've just thought to stop that. And that brings us to the end of part one of this episode. We look forward to you joining us for part two and further insights next episode. Thank you for listening to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast, brought to you by Osman and Fresenius Carby. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. To keep up to date with all the latest from Austin, you can head over to our website at www.ospen.org.au or email us at podcast at 